Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. My name is Sharon. I'm an alcoholic. Thank you, Alexa, very much for all your text messages and meeting me and being right there and not telling the stories those girls told you about me to tell at the podium. (laughs) One was a naked person in a marijuana patch and whatever. (laughs) Couldn't have been me. (laughs) They were feeding her with all kinds of stuff. So thank you, Randy. Thank you, committee. Thank you, everybody. Um, I've had a great time. This is, gosh, I've been here for the Red River Valley Rally quite a few times. Um, I've been at singles a couple of times. And it's all been right here. It's all been right here. So I guess this is the uh, swan song for the building. Um, hmm. I have a way of doing that sometimes. Uh, (laughs) Burn it down. No. um, (laughs) Kidding, kidding, kidding. (laughs) Oh, when they say rarely have we seen a person fail, I used to always just hang on that rarely. I know that's me. They mean me. Um, (laughs) I think Bill wanted to put in the word never, and uh, somebody convinced him to put in the word rarely. And I love it that this book was written by people with five years of sobriety or less, you know. Um, and I love it that they were writing the book and sending the manuscript over to the publisher, and people would, I'll take it, Bill, I'll take it. And then he'd see things there that, when did that get in there? You know, the guys in the car writing in it. And so <laughs> it's very alcoholically done, and it's beautiful. <laughs> And it's a miracle, like what your conference name is, which I think is such a great name, um, because really, miracles in Saint um, in Lake Mary. So there we, I almost said Saint Mary, but um, <laughs> we're not baptizing tonight, so we're good. <laughs> <laughs> but we all are. I mean, I, you know, Einstein says you can look at everything like everything's a miracle, or nothing's a miracle. And I want to look at at life like everything is, because. I am conscious today, I'm awake today, I'm alive, and and I am in the world, and there's things I I see that, you know, hurt my heart, and there's things that I see that warm my heart. And I want to be part of the force for good in the world, and that's what I try to do today. And um, I want to thank my three girls for coming, too. It's 27, 28, and 40 of years of sobriety between, well, each one of them. And Linda's right on my tail, so I have to behave. Um, <laughs> You know, I think I'll drink. No, then I'll have less time than Linda. You know, it's like, <laughs> got to have some of those right behind you, you know? <laughs> so, and, and you know, I just, um, you know, Tim, it's, it's, I've known your daughter, and I've sponsored his daughter, and so, you know, we're all very, very connected in, in very much of this, and what can I say? Um, just, you know... We got a lot in L.A. going on, you know. We got a lot going on in L.A. And and that's, uh, you know, there's a lot to do. If you are bored, you're boring. Get going, you know. Alcoholics Anonymous needs your passion, needs your energy, needs your time. Um, you know, if you want a spiritual awakening, you got to be spiritually inconvenienced a lot of the time. And... That's just what it is, you know, and you have to answer the phone and say yes and show up. And I've 
had smart feet in my sobriety and I've had good teachers and my sponsor is busier than me, so it keeps me moving. Um, I come from Iowa. I know that's a hard one to imagine. And um, <laughs> But, you know, I had a dad that woke us up in the middle of the night to take us to see the northern lights. I had um, a mother who listened to the radio every time there was a storm. And if there was a tornado warning, we were in the basement with the parakeet, the dog, the cat, all of us in the certain corner of the basement, you know, and... And so I was cared for, very much cared for, but I had a busy head. I had a busy head, and I was over-emotional. And I have three siblings that aren't alcoholic, parents that aren't alcoholic. As far as I can tell, nobody in my direct line that we know of is alcoholic. So where did I come from? I don't know. I just know that I was looking for the mothership at a young age. I knew that they dropped me off. Um, I had grandparents that I loved, and I would make my... My parents stopped the car if we were a block away because I wanted to give them one more hug because they might die before I see them again. I mean, everything was very, I, I was, it was very intense. And I was on a search early on looking for a spiritual solution. And I like Gandhi, but in, you're in Iowa and you're in the breadbasket of the world and everybody, I couldn't fast and I had to eat meat. And, you know, it was, I was like, oh, Sharon, just eat your potatoes, you know, and it was, no, I'm, you know, I'm fasting, you know, and, and then, and, and I just got really obsessed with some different things, but, um, I was a good girl and I love God and God loved me and, and I wanted to be a nun. I wanted to make a difference. I really did. I knew the world needed me to make a difference. And I don't know if that's ego or what, but I had a loud head. I was had insomniac. I thought I saw spirits. There was a lot of stuff when I was a little girl. And I kept it to myself because my best friend said at a camp out, we were camping out under the stars on her farm, and she said, tell me some secrets. And I told her. And then, she, <laughs> right, she didn't want to play with me for two years. <laughs> so I learned do not tell. Do not tell what's going on in there. And um, so... I, you know, there was always alcohol around. My dad was Czech. It was a big community. People, people spoke Czech. We polkaed. We had, I played the accordion. I know I played the accordion. And it wasn't cool then. It's still not cool now. But <laughs> I did it so my dad, you know, I'd be on that hay wagon going around the corner and it's sauerkraut days in Lisbon, Iowa, you know, and <laughs> the Boddicker accordion band is coming around the corner and I'm pulling on my Titano Italian button. You know, it was a, it was a piano accordion. I'm pulling on it and I, because I know right around the corner my dad is going to go nudge his friend and go, that's ah, my girl, you know, and it was worth it. All the boys going, I thought that was that cool girl, you know, but no, I, I you know, I'd be there hangover with doing the, you know, Lady of Spain or whatever it was, just because I knew my dad would give me that thumbs up. And so I, I love my dad. He was a great guy. And my mom took care of us great. My mother was, you know, she'd sit up at night and alter our dresses and and um, so she, but I'm a, I'm a manipulator, you know. I took home ec and I got an A, and I don't even know how to thread a sewing machine. <laughs> I was really good at it. And what happened in um, about 12 or 13 years old on a summer night, I ended up uh, on the with my Clark brothers. They had a '57 Chevy. They were fun, and they would come up and pick me up, and they'd let me hang out as long as I sat in the back seat and shut up. So they would let me hang out with them, and we were driving around. It was a hot summer night, and 
we pulled up on, you know, they had those blacktop roads in, in the Midwest, and they, you know, there's a place called the Seven Sisters, and you could catch air if you were going, you know, it was fun. I, I loved rolling cars. I loved all of that, you know, and if you landed wheels down, it was like, yes. And, it, you know, the guy wasn't happy about his car, but it was fun. You know, I liked all that. And so we were we were meeting other cars, and they turned up their radio stations, and there's the football players, and there's Jeanette Andrews, and she's mohair sweater tucked in her little shorts with her little thin ankles and her little white sneakers on. And I thought, mohair sweater, it's 85 degrees. What is she doing? And she turned sideways, you know. And uh, I saw why she wore that mohair sweater tucked into her little shorts. And the boys were all around her, and it was like, I looked down, I got a T-shirt on, and nothing happening. And... <laughs> But I'm sitting on that car, and they they got the Canadian club out, and they got some Schlitz beer, and they started passing it around. Thank you, Canada, because that whiskey woke up my trainer bra, <laughs> curved my little calves, I crossed my legs, and I moved Jeanette off the hood of that Chevy, and I arrived, and I had so much fun, and I thought... You know what happened? It was it was a spiritual experience for me. Uh, why go to India? Why follow Gandhi? You know, have Canadian club. It was the spirits of alcohol that I was seeking, and it worked for me. And, you know, I, it's a secret that I didn't really tell a lot of people. I went to confession on Saturday, and I went to communion on Sunday, and I was... You know, I was in that confession on Saturday afternoon. I know Saturday night I'm going to Swisher. I'm dancing. My parents are dropping me off because I'm under still 14, and they're going to drop me off and pick me up because it's a dance. They have a dance there. They have a little band, and they have a dance there. And I get up to those boys from Iowa City, and, you know, we're dancing slow on one of those, you know, Righteous Brothers songs or something, and I'm up close and personal in a V-neck sweater and that smell of Jade East or English leather or whatever was going on, but it better have some whiskey underneath it. <laughs> and if it didn't have a smell of whiskey underneath that English leather, I was next, because I know the ones with the smell of whiskey, they had something out in the car, because we would go out the back door, and we'd have a little drink or two or three, and every break we'd be back out, back out in the car, and then my parents would pick me up, and I'd pass out in the back seat, and we'd drive me home. they just, oh, Sharon's tired from dancing. <laughs> I wasn't like making, but I was getting it. I was watering down. My dad had a business. He had a bar. He had the Ham's beer signs up there. I love that bar. It was made of, it was made of redwood. It was beautiful. And I just, everything about it was great. And so I was starting to sneak drinks and sneak booze. I had, my dad was losing flasks right and left because I was taking them to school. Um, I was drinking. I was cutting up in the afternoon with the older kids. I made it happen. And you know, then I went off to college because that's what you do in my family. And I, I have a scholarship to Colorado. Get out of Iowa, right? But no, I had a boyfriend. And so I went to the university, which was like 30 miles from home. And he was a wrestler. And, you know, and actually, he, you know, he, he became my fiance my first year in college. And it, it was a lot going on. It was the 60s. It wasn't just say no, say thanks. You know, it was a lot going on then. And, um, <laughs> So I, I did a lot of studying really fast and things like that. But, um, but I had a fake ID because it was easy to make a fake ID back then. You could go to Joe's place. I went to Joe's place. I had the fake ID. They didn't care that, you know, if I came back for my 21st birthday, you know. We thought you were of age. No, my 21st birthday. Okay, let's celebrate. Nobody cared. But 
that first year, um, things happened. I caught him uh, cheating on me with his tutor. And um, I, I went and went, made sure his lights went off, and I got all wired up on some good, it was malt liquor. And I drank a whole six-pack sitting there in the car waiting for the lights to go off in his apartment, let myself in, and I jumped on him, and I started punching on him. And uh, you know, he's a wrestler. I'm on the floor in two seconds, right? So it's like, you know, I'm spitting up at him, and I'm cursing him, and he's telling me to calm down. And I just, he, and I told, I went, I, you know, take your ring. I go, I went and saw my mother. My mother said, aren't you going to cry? And I said, no. Nobody said I, my family was fine. My, we had three girls and a boy. It was emotion, a lot of emotions, a lot of hormones. As long as you didn't slam the door and the crucifix fell on the floor, everything was okay. <laughs> once my sister did that once, and it was like, oh, look at Sally's going to hell. It was like, you know. <laughs> so it was okay. So it was okay for me to cry, but yet I was already getting hardened by alcohol. I was already starting to harden my heart. And um, there was a lot that happened the next couple of years, but what happened was King Alcohol asked for pieces of me. And I was drunk at a lot of those art classes. I had some art talent. It was gone. I, you know, at some point I drank that up. King Alcohol said, slide it across the bar. That's right. You hear that? Slide it across the bar. <laughs> Who's doing the sound effects? That was awesome. It's like... <laughs> Perfect. But, you know, King Alcohol said, and I said, you know, art talent, take it. Give me my booze. King Alcohol is winning in my life over every situation. And I have my chapter three. I moved to New York City. I worked at a big ad, ad agency. We had two-hour martini lunches every day. It was the summer of orange sunshine and a lot of booze, a lot of booze. And I found truth a lot, but, you know, I'd be on the subway and it'd melt before I could write it down, you know, or... <laughs> I was just that whole that whole nine months. I was uh, I was seeing I was seeing things flashes out of the corner of my eyes because I had a big I that was my vitamin C. I had a big baggie of it on my table. I'm just looking at fingers every morning, and and drink and I drank and I didn't sleep much. And um, I called my dad and said, "Can I come back to art school?" He said, "All right, but I'm not paying for the party anymore." In other words, get serious. And I went back to art school and I couldn't paint. And that's when I knew things had changed. And um, at one point in there, I think I mentioned it in our workshop, I cut my wrists, and that was my solution one day to, to life. And um, it was a serious event, and my dad brought the priest to help me, and I got drunk with the priest, and that's how I think about things. I'm fine. What, do you, what, do you, what are you worried about me for? And, you know, they would look at me, and I'd say, you know, leave me alone. I'm not hurting anyone but me. And what a selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed, cry that is. It's just, just stand in front of me and watch me die as I come home every couple of months and you see me change right in front of you. You know, you see how I look and how I look worse and, and how, where, where's our daughter going? There's no more sparkle. There's no more love. There's no more softness. There's only somebody we don't know showing up. And, um, I, um, you know, I ended up, my mom, my mom and dad, my dad and I couldn't sit at the breakfast table, couldn't ride in the same car. Uh, there was so much pressure and tension in the room. My dad never laid a hand on me, but it was a lot of emotional, broken hearts hanging around when I was there. And um, I, my dad didn't want to pay for my party anymore, and I ended up in Colorado, and um, you know, I wanted to be a cowgirl. And it didn't happen. I ended up working as a waitress at a place where the 
the cow people, cowgirls came in. And I smelled the horse on them and served them breakfast, and I was hung over, and I worked for a, a Marine. He was the owner of this restaurant, and he'd scream at me, and I'd scream at him, but we drank in the morning, you know, in the kitchen. We drank in the morning. And uh, it, one day, and walked Bob Dylan in this restaurant by Aspen and ordered a chocolate milkshake to go, and I thought, that's Bob Dylan. So I made two chocolate milkshakes to go. I said, I quit, and I got in the car with this man who I think was Bob Dylan. I'm not really sure. <laughs> I said, where are we going? Bobby said, California, you want to come? And I did. I went to California. And I ended up at my first commune. And they asked me to leave because I drank their bong wine. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm hanging out with people that are hanging on the edge sometimes. And they're looking at me like, why do you have to drink so much? Why can't you just smoke this? Because, you know, I, you're boring. You guys sitting around drooling on yourselves all the time. And the animals are drooling on themselves. And there was... One hyper dog and me, and we didn't like all of that. We had to get drunk, and we had to have a good time, and we wanted to party. And so they took me out to the um, Mount Baldy for a picnic, and they said, bring your backpack. I thought, why do they want me to bring my backpack? Yeah, you're right. They left me and the dog at Mount Baldy. <laughs> Bye. So I hitchhiked back to Colorado because I do. That's like, fine. Let's just go. You know, I didn't care. But I had my new companion with me, and... And that dog and I ended up in Iowa, and my mom said, you break your father's heart, please stay out of his way. That's not anything you really want to hear. Um, and I was, a, I was depressed and lonely and sorry and sad and judging everybody in that small town I grew up in in the bar every night. But I'm in there every night. And a guy I had gone to school with was showed up one night in Indian gauze clothing, and he was all mellow, and he had beads, and his hair was all out, and his glasses were all, like, round like John Lennon, and he had his eyes spinning, and it was like, whoa, I want what he's got, you know? <laughs> right, Teresa? I want what this guy's got. And, uh, you know, so I didn't know what... What he, what he had was 85 acres of organic land in northern Wisconsin in a non-insulated schoolhouse we were living in. Northern Wisconsin. <laughs> Cold. And we heated with wood, so we had to chop wood. We had to buzzsaw it, chop it, split it. You want tea? Go split some wood. You know? It's like, this place is work. You know, I thought we were just going to have a good time. And there was a whole community of organic farmers there. We'd all get together for hoot nannies. And they would drink these little glasses of dandelion wine. It's like, I didn't even want one. It was so small. And they were another bunch. They're smoking all. I was like, oh, God, you guys are so boring. You know, and now I played the spoons. I tried. I sat there, you know. I tried. I tried. And... I'd have to go get some cheap wine and come back and just tell them all what I thought, kick the banjo, you know. And they would, like, look at me like, why do you have to act like that? Why can't you just smoke this and mellow out? Because I like to drink and you're boring, you know. And I'd crank up the stones and I'd take their Pete Seeger records and whip them across the room and they'd have to duck. And, you know, I'm, my boots are on and I'm, you know, I'm going to go out and scream at the sheep for 50 minutes, you know. <laughs> It's my primal. They went and had primal therapy, and mine was drinking and screaming at the organic sheep. And um, <laughs> it was very confusing. I thought I was going to have a break, and I ended up having my gallbladder removed. I had pancreatitis. And I remember this is going back. This person recognized something wrong with me. 
this doctor said, you shouldn't look like this at your age. You abuse drugs or alcohol. And I looked at him and I said, I'm organic. <laughs> True story. So, you know, I, you know, we did Yule Gibbons, Adele Davis. We had the wheat grinder and the wheat berries and the organic, and you make your own flour. And I was like, oh, my God, you guys are amazingly sick. And, um, you know, so I'm drinking, and they're not liking it, and I'm not liking them very much, but I had to hang around in the winter because there was nowhere to go. And that spring we planted uh, a lot of Maui, Maui seed and um, 12 loads of sheep dung back there on, as we rototilled the four, the, that virgin forest floor with black flies biting our back and the sheep dung and a wheelbarrow up and down. I was committed to that. Now that I was committed to. And uh, I've got an organic crop going on here. And um, so that was going to be my way out of town because that was my money, right? That was my money. And they did go off and do primal therapy and they, you know, they took the wood stove. They took, you know, and I just, I don't care. I'm here with my dog and my cat and my horse and Clarence the farmer and Clarence had come with the tractor. I hear it coming around the lane. I'm going, oh, good, Clarence is bringing that wild turkey, you know, because all I can really afford is wine. And Clarence would come at night, and he was on a tractor. He had too many DUIs in the state of Wisconsin, so they pulled his license, so he's driving the tractor. He was about five feet tall, and he wouldn't put in his teeth a lot of nights, and I didn't care, you know, whatever. He's my buddy. And then I think his wife took away the keys to the tractor, and I never saw him again, so I don't know what happened. But um, he used to take his wife to the chiropractor. He'd put her on the chair and tie her to the tractor. If she didn't need it before, she needed it after. Is that right there? You know what I mean? Oh, that's, it was just odd. But, you know, they had a windmill, and I would go up on the hill. I would drink my wine and spit into the big storm coming, and I don't care, and I got... I didn't shave for a year, man. I had hair growing everywhere. And I put my arms up, and it's flying, and my legs are flying. I don't care. I think I just embarrassed my girls. <laughs> Good. It was a whole new experience. Anyway, I finally did, Jay, but um, it was uh, it was cold. You don't, I mean, you just don't get in and out of a shower up there when it's, you know, 40 below. And, uh, you know, unless you've got some good, you know, some good whiskey on. But um, so I turned this, I, I had the big harvest with the crop, me and the horse, and um, the wood stove and the roots and doing it right and hanging it upside down. And, you know, pretty soon I'm seeing low-flying planes, or I think I'm seeing low-flying planes. And... And I'm drinking, and, and um, I've got this, this whole thing set up at this, this college town. And I'm going to this college town with all my hefty bags, and we're turning it into money. And these college kids, it's all set up, right? And they're, they're gone now. They left me with the crop, which was fine. And um, I drive into town, and we get there, and I get to the apartment door, and I went, oh, crap, I forgot the stuff. You know, and it's back at 45 miles back at the farm. Oh. You know, the dog forgot to tell me, and I'm, you know, I'm loaded, and the dog's looking at me like, what? You know, and it's like, so I just turned around, and there was a carnival, and there was the Ferris wheel, and, the, you know, the music, and there was the Ferris, all that pretty, the calliope music, and I turned around, I went, looked at the lights of that carnival, and I went, this is the way my mind works. Ah, always wanted to be a gypsy. <laughs> Just leave it all behind. That's my way out. 
And uh, the guy's name was Matt Armstrong, and we went shot for shot in a, a bottle of tequila, and he said, you're hired. <laughs> and very funny, Randy, this is many years later, we were talking about this guy, Randy sold him clothes. He tailor-made clothes his wife would order and then come in with piles of cash. Um, and it's such a funny, you know, how you never know who's connected with who, but it's, you know, I think his liver blew up quite a few years ago, and he's gone now. But Matt was something else, and he had this carnival. He hired this little Wisconsin farm girl, he thought, right? He had no idea what he was getting. Tequila drinking, Mason one boot, you know, my pint in the other boot, and... And, uh, you know, my mouth to the side, not a nice person when I'm drinking, my cowboy boots on, and, you know, I got my crop in the car, and what's your name, where are we going? And he gave me my joint, and my joint was a shooting gallery. So that was me, and I have to get my flash, my teddy bears, and and off we went. And we, I know I played this part of the world right here, Lawton. And and Anarco, I think it's called. We played some of those towns here. So I had like little boys come to the shooting gallery. It was a little boy's shooting gallery. And there were nights that I was drinking my tequila. There were nights that I didn't feel very generous. There were nights that I thought, you know, I'm not giving away any of my hard-earned money and my hard-earned teddy bears up there tonight. And, you know, because I'm just not in the mood, you know, and it's... And they would come and they would shoot their three targets down and then they would cheer like they wanted teddy bear and I would take my finger and pop up one of those targets and go, no, you didn't. <laughs> and they would all go, yes, I did, yes, I did. And I said, go wind your dad. You know what? And they did. And then they brought their dads over and then the mace would have to come out and then we'd have a big fight and then everybody would jump off behind their stores, their flat stores or whatever they were doing, and they, you know, it's a big fight in the midway because we protected each other. And even though they didn't teach me how to speak Zeke I had to learn myself how to speak their language. I was like, what are they saying? I had to really learn. It's kind of a carny pig Latin thing. That's it. That's it. That's it. And, and so, you know, then we got closed down, and then Matt would get mad at me. And uh, so... If I owe your kid a teddy bear, or if you're <laughs> if you're one of those kids many years ago grown up now, it's okay. I will get you a teddy bear. So I am here to make my amends to you because I was not a nice person. And and um now I met him there too. You know, you you, you can meet him with the show, just so you know. Yeah, that rhymes. But um so his name was Kirby and he had a pet skunk named Crank who had been defunct. <laughs> so there we were, me and my dog, the skunk, and the skunk man, all in the same, um, you know, abode. And they had a lot of potential. And um, somewhere Matt got tired of that little Wisconsin girl, and he, he kind of said, you know, let's get rid of her. So, you know, I had all of this for bartering. I had more hidden in the dog food, but he also knew, you know, they knew where they knocked on the door in Bogalusa, Louisiana, who had gotten closed down in Monroe or somewhere, and he wasn't very happy with me again. And he called Washington Parish Finest and said, she's in room 101. And they came at 6 a.m. and knocked in the door and, you know, found everything. And off we go, the skunk, the dog, me, and the, the potential one. 
off to uh, Bogalusa, Louisiana jail where the bugs drag your shoes across the floor at night. <laughs> They're big. And uh, we were making a wagon out of little pieces of pancake thinking we could make them pull. I mean, you know, you get really bored when you're in jail. <laughs> That's why I don't like bugs to this day. I'm really kind of funny about them. Um, so I'm having DTs, and the carnival doesn't come back and get me. Nobody even brought me cigarettes or magazines. And they were glad to get rid of me. And I couldn't believe it. I'm locked up. They didn't give me my rights. They didn't read me my rights. They didn't give me my phone call. And they didn't care. They didn't care. And um, they're coming in at night, and they pick who they want. True. They, they did. That, was, that wasn't a, you know... A fantasy. They were coming in, but I had found a little piece of bottle, Coke bottle, and I had cut myself on my face, on my arms, on my hands, wherever it showed, because I wanted to have blood so you would leave me alone. And they did. They came in at night and said, oh, she's the crazy one. And I didn't know I was having all these DTs, and I did find somebody who was making their own pruno, they called it, and um, so I could drink that. I got that, but... I couldn't believe, I mean, I am not good locked up. I did not believe this happened to me. And I have, I'm going to tell you about the day that I, I know what I was and what I did to my family and what King Alcohol, what I had to give up for King Alcohol to keep working in my life. They cuffed me, threw me in the car, drove me to a building, and there sat my dad. He had hired a lawyer. He had hired a bail bondsman. He'd heard about all of this. From my, I finally got my one phone call. My brother-in-law in New York called my dad. My dad got on a plane, brought his checkbook, and um, you know, Tim, you, 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 your daughter was out there. You know. And I, when I saw, walked in and saw my dad, there was, if I could have just imploded, I would have. I felt like the dirtiest, sickest piece of I don't know, something from the bottom of your shoe to scrape me off and leave me there. And um, my dad, I got to talk about this to my father when I was 20 years sober because I didn't go home and just scrape off, you know, scabs. Oh, remember this? Remember that? Remember this? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't get to do that. They didn't let me do that at a man's. I went slow, and I had to be a good example, and I had to be a good daughter, and I had to be consistent. There was a lot of pain in my family. Nobody knew alcoholism. Nobody knew what was going on with me, and they were very hurt. So my father said, you know, when I saw my dad, I was at the end of a dock on a lake in Wisconsin, and it was perfect. I was 20 years sober. I went and sat down. I thought, now's the time. So I said, Dad, do you remember the day when, you know, of course he did. <laughs> he had to bring the checkbook, get on the plane, rent the car. So we laughed about that for a minute, because as soon as it was out of my mouth, I thought, what a ridiculous question. But we laughed about it, and we talked about it, because I don't remember that. I, I shut down, and my dad said, the only things you said to the lawyer and the bail bondsman was that you were not guilty, and it was not your fault. And I believed it. And I became the perfect victim. And if you're drinking, and you're living the life I was living, being a victim is perfect, because there's no guilt. It's your fault. It's their fault. It's how it was, and it was perfect, but that's what my dad said. I said those two things the whole day, and then they took my dad's money, sent me back to jail, and I never got out until they decided I wanted to get out, and they slapped me with a felony because of the content and because of the, the amount, 
And I, even though it wasn't for sale, it was bartering, they didn't believe it. Um, <laughs> so I found the French Quarter of New Orleans, and I fell in love <laughs> with all of you other dark alcoholics that didn't like the sun that came out. We were in there. If, if the sun came out and I'm in the Bastille, I'm there until the sun goes down. And Billy would take care of me and put my purse under the bar, and I could pass out and come too. It was just a bad thing if you passed out in the bathroom. Nobody really liked anybody to pass out in the bathroom. That wasn't a very good thing. But I got 86 from the Bastille, and it is. We painted, we painted the windows black. I mean, it was like a local joint in the quarter. And you probably would have, if you were a tourist, never even noticed it when you walked by. And I got 86, and I didn't know why, because I was going to pay my tab. And he said, out. I said, come on, Billy, what's up? And he said, the owner doesn't want you here anymore. And I said, why? I got money. And he looked up and the ceiling fan was broken. I said, oh, did I do that? And he said, yeah, you were dancing on the bar. You got your hair caught in there. Oh. <laughs> so I remember I had a little bald spot for a while, but I thought, you know, <laughs> it's just a fun night, you know, I guess. I'm a blackout drinker. A lot of things happen. It's like, is that my blood, your blood? What's happening here? Um, but what happened was the owner was mad at me because I, I guess I got swung around and I hit all the good bottles. You know, I hit the <laughs> the Bacardi Black Bat and all of that. You know, I hit the good stuff. So he was mad at me for breaking the bottles. So it was hard to get 86 from there. And the other place I got 86 from in my drinking that I remember was a place on Hollywood Boulevard called Filthy McNasty's. <laughs> Figure that one out. Um, in a blackout, still don't know what happened. But, um, yeah, so I, I drank, I drank, and I drank, and I drank, and I tended bar, and I danced on Bourbon Street, and I did a lot of things. But, you know, me and Skunk Man were getting in a, in a knockdown drag out all the time. And he hated me, and I hated him, but nobody's leaving. Uh, I'm a loyal Leo man. I'm on your leg out that door until less we're done. And we weren't done. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it... My parents came to visit. I didn't know they were coming to visit. I'm living above a biker bar, tar paper roof apartment, skunk droppings everywhere. Uh, and lady of the evening worked next to me, and it's always screaming coming out of there. I was like, come on, you know? And then the guy uh, rode his bike up the steps into the first apartment. Nobody locked their doors. It was just seedy, sorry place. And I go to the door in my platinum bob wig and my fishnets and my black eye that's been glittered up because the drag queen showed me how to glitter up a black eye, make it look good. And there was mom and dad. There's my mom who used to take in my dresses, who used to meet all my boyfriends, sit them on the couch and talk to them, who was proud of her little girl who went to the White House when she was 16 as a young citizen of America. It was your future. <laughs> and there was my mom with a tear in her eye. My dad couldn't come in because we had a snake now, so the guy put the snake in my dad's face, and it was like my father didn't even move from outside that door. And this is about amends, and I want to really get into amends because um, I didn't know my younger brother and sister on that trip. And we were sitting around, um, I don't know, many years ago at a dinner, and they started talking about that guy and that apartment. And I'm going, how did you, why do you guys know that? And they said, well, we were, you know, they were there. And I went, oh, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. I, I'm a blackout drinker. 
So when I saw on page 77 where I had my spiritual awakening looking at that line of my real purpose that I had been looking for my whole life, our real purpose, wow, there it is. Seven years sober, I found my purpose. I found it, I got it, I awakened to it, and I put it in my soul. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves, to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. And that doesn't mean I get to judge who gets my kindness. I don't get to have discriminatory compassion. That means I have to be available. That means I have to say yes. That means I have to keep myself in fit spiritual conditions so that I can perform his work. So because of that line and that purpose, it allows me to make peace with my past that I don't remember. Sometimes I get to find out. Sometimes I don't get to find out. I got to find out my little brother wanted to smack that guy, but he was too big and my brother was too small. I got to find out that he took my sister out when she went to get a sandwich and he followed her out and took her to some girly show and she said he's stupid. I knew my mom and dad were there, but I didn't know they were there. How many times did I miss the pain I caused the world? I am so privileged to walk out into the world and smile at you, whoever you are, just another human being in front of me, and maybe give you a smile and maybe get one back. I do that at lunch, most days. I'm in a bad mood, I stay in. <laughs> but that's my life today, and I had no idea that it was going to be so beautiful to be through these steps and be able to start making amends and having awarenesses. And um, 1975 was the year I got sober. My friend Michael was shot and killed on Mardi Gras Day. I don't remember much about it. I was in a brownout, in and out. The way I deal with that kind of emotion is I look at them and I say, I'm taking a bath as they all hit the deck and the gunshots happened. And I closed myself in the bathroom and made the police knock down the door to come get me. And my friend was the assistant chief of police. He drank with us. And he said, you better get out of town because you are a felon and there's stuff in this apartment and you could go away to Angola for a long time. And I left town and I sat in my sister and brother-in-law's back apartment in Upper West Side, New York, and I couldn't get out. I drank all their their whiskey, drank it all up. And um, my older sister and I have had a lot of water under the bridge. And um, she's been beautiful to me. She's the one that sent me airline tickets if I needed it, that kind of thing. Um, I paid them back. Um, when I recently... Um, thought I could get an apartment, a condo. Um, she helped me with the down payment, and I'm paying her back. Um, she's very much like my dad. If I like, It always comes. I've not missed a payment, but if it's like a day late, I get an email, and in the ray line it says, check. <laughs> <laughs> she's very much like my dad. Well, <laughs> but she and I have had... Um, a very hard time with things. And she was the one I followed through school. She was the one that she read I didn't, you know. I'm reading the classics when I'm like 35 years old because I didn't read because she did. She read everything. And she made my life hard because she was so smart. And she was, you know, just perfect. And uh, But I said to her once, I said, don't you remember Dad taking us, waking us up to see, you know, the Northern Lights? And she said, no. She was probably reading, you know. So there are things she missed, and she travels now like crazy, and I'm so happy. And 
we were just in, in Paris together, which was kind of an odd thing that we ended up there. And, and you know, it's like, to me, it was like Paris, you know, it's like, it's like their eighth time there or something. But my son has been working there. He's worked there from December until just this last month. And so I went to see my son. I hadn't seen him. And um, we had a great time together. And there was one moment when I forgot to turn my wine glass over because everybody else can drink, right? They're fine. And the lady started pouring the wine in front of me. My sister's hand, my son's hand. <laughs> and they didn't look at me and went, you can't have any. They, they looked at the server and they said, she doesn't want any. Everybody was in unison. She doesn't want any. I felt so loved. It was so great. <laughs> and this is the first year, my, my natal birthday is in August, the beginning of August. And this is the first year she sent me a present that she had picked out in France for me and a card. And then a long time, so we're good. You know, I tried to make a med search. She went, no, we're fine. But I knew there was something there. And uh, it's just been joyful for me because she's kind of been the last holdout in my family, you know, after all these years, right? <laughs> so it was very joyful to see that. And, you know, um, I ended up on my way to Hawaii seeing the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous on a bar in West Hollywood, and the girl was drunk, and they had to call her a taxi, and we cheered her, yeah, I go for you, go to A&A. I didn't have any idea what Alcoholics Anonymous was, no idea at all. And she was going to be my Eskimo in here, little did I know. So I ended up in Palm Springs. I am now, I have no place to live. I'm sleeping on floors. I'm sleeping in hallways. I have 175 bloated, toxic, alcoholic mess, liver spots on my face. I had a Panama hat so you wouldn't look in my eyes. I'm unemployable. I am unemployable now. Uh, they asked me to leave after a half a shift at a cocktail waitress place and paid me and said, I don't come back because I couldn't remember where the drinks went. I have my book, Be Here Now, by Baba Ram Das in my backpack. I have my red dashiki. I am unwashed, unkempt. When you said water hurt, I totally remember that when water hurt. I stopped showering. I stopped getting in the tub. It hurt. And... um so my mom doesn't know where I am. My dad doesn't. They don't know where I am. I'm just on the streets. And um, I had to go get my booze before they closed the bars. Sometimes wherever I was staying, I had to go get my booze before they closed the bars or the liquor stores. And I remember I was so paranoid, and I had to hide all the way to the liquor store. And I was staying at this girl's apartment, this girl who had the you know, I'd go get her court card signed. And I got on a bike, and I went to Palm Springs, and the bikers left me, and I got beat up that night, and I became a victim. I was a documented victim of violent crime. <laughs> and I'm laying on this gurney, and I have my jaw broken in three places, and my nose broken in concussion, and I'm a mess. I'm drug around in the cement. I'm just a mess. I'm a mess. But I had that moment, that, that you, one of the promises, that great fact deep down within. I was laying in this ditch, and I heard the car door slam. I'm a survivor. And my body and my body woke up and said, get up, I want to live. It woke me up, said, get up, I want to live. Now, I don't remember how I ended up by the pool and the gardener, and I ended up in the, I guess, I'm in a gurney, and the police are there, and I have to write who I am because I can't talk, and I see in front of my name the word victim. Yes. <laughs> I'm shooting for victim. Documented victim. That's what I gave up for King Alcohol. Everything else, just let me be the victim. And um, 
I thought I wanted lights out. I put myself in a situation where lights out and it didn't happen. And I'm in the hospital for two weeks. And um, I'm all wired up and I'm bruised up and I'm broken and I'm tired. I am tired, tired, tired. And they're letting me out and I have nowhere to go. And this guy that lived above a liquor store said he could take care of me in West L.A. And he, they caught these guys. I had to go back to court. I had to tell the detective. I had a detective. I didn't know who was who in the zoo. I don't really remember. I was in a blackout. I was like, like this. And that's what came to you on August 20th, 1975. It was a beaten up, broken ember of life. That's all that was left. Because I called my mom the day that guy said, you got to leave. You got to leave because you're depressing me. And I called my mom, collect, of course, with I can't talk. First three months in AA, I couldn't talk. So it was a blessing, really. They didn't have to say, take the cotton out of yours and put it in her mouth. <laughs> you know, and he was buying me cheap wine and I would stick it through the where the tooth had been kicked out and suck on that cheap wine because I'm a drinker. But there was no more spiritual awakening in that alcohol for me. It was drinking Kool-Aid, and I was bone-tired, soul-tired. And uh, my mom said, Sharon, I can't help you. Why don't you go to the Salvation Army? And I looked down, and the phone number was there, and it was that girl, Chris. Not relating. It was just my day to come to you. It was just the window opened up. I got pulled through the window, slammed shut. I ended up in AA. And that girl's phone number, and I called her, and she couldn't 12-step me that day because she had been drinking, but she heard what had happened to me, and so she had me call a stranger, and I called a stranger. I don't call strangers and ask for help. And Suzanne went to work on me right away. She knew the liquor store I was living above. She, couldn't, she didn't care that she couldn't understand me. She knew she heard Duck Pond Liquor Store, and she knew exactly where I was. She said, go sit on the steps. I'm going to send someone to get you. How does she know their steps? She said, put your drink down, put your joint down. How does she know I have both? What's going on here? Yes, I <laughs> but I just followed along, sat on the steps, and this car pulled up, and it was bright yellow, and I couldn't look at it, and the girls were bright, and they had smiled, and they came at me, and I couldn't look at them, and I thought... No, I don't like them. <laughs> That's my head. But they picked me up because they picked me up, put me in the back of a Volkswagen where I couldn't get out. <laughs> I am detoxing. I don't smell good. doesn't smell like Tiffany perfume in the back of that August Volkswagen. And every red light, one of them would, the driver turn around and tell me parts of her story. And then the other one would go when she had to drive. And I thought, God, they're talking about themselves so much. <laughs> Nobody's asking me about me. <laughs> I had a newspaper clipping in my jeans pocket, and I thought, okay, someone's going to ask. I'm going to pull out the clip. Unemployed bartender from New Orleans, right? It goes through this whole thing. I'm ready to show them what happened to me. Nobody asked. They just would look at me and go, oh, she looks tired. Maybe she'll make it, you know? And... <laughs> And I would think, how do they know I'm tired? And, and come look at this one, you know? And are you new? It's like, how do they know I was new? You know, it was just like, it just perplexed me. You could smell me as you hit the door. Newcomer, yeah, I love that. <laughs> love that smell. I mean, we don't get it enough around here, you know? I love a wet one. Oh, love it, love it. Love those crowded elevators when there's somebody in there partying the night before. Who is it? Let me find them. You know, it's like... <laughs> love that smell. And so there I was, sitting in my very first meeting at a church, and I thought, okay, I have, I've been there. You know, I almost 
the Holy Rolls almost got me really close. Um, I almost got my mantra, but then they wanted money, so I had to give my one-fingered peace sign and say, it's about peace and love and freedom. You're making me pay for my mantra. See ya. You know, and I tried a lot of these things, but never committed. And I thought, oh, here I am again at a church. Me and God and the Catholics, had we, we had a fight when I was about mm, 20. And I left God there, and I said, I won't bother you. You don't bother me. And um, so there he is, the guy the, at the pulpit, I thought, you know, he's an AA guy talking about alcohol. I don't have any, I don't have any idea. This lady, Beverly, who's big meeting in the sky said, I raised your hand for you because I knew you were an alcoholic. Just put it up. I, thought, I don't even remember that. And he, he hooked me. And every single one of us have been saved to save another. I believe that with my whole heart. And they will only hear it from you. Now, maybe it's as they're walking out the door and they'll hear you talking to somebody else. I have a girl I sponsor leaving for the fifth time, and she said, that's it, I'm going to go kill myself. A doesn't work for me. And she heard a guy saying, she knew him by his shoes only. She heard a guy saying, don't leave five minutes before the miracle, as he was talking to somebody else. And something inside of her lit up. And she came back in and sat down, and she's been sober now 31 years. So we all have something in us to hook somebody. And you don't know who it is. Maybe you'll never know, but we have that. In this day and age where everything's kind of topsy-turvy in the world, we get to save a life. You can take the finest ambassadors and negotiators and psychiatrists and biologists but if they're not alcoholic and they're sitting in front of a newcomer, they can't help them. But uneducated, from the streets, alcoholics, sober with a fire in their belly can sit in front of that person and save a life. We have a job to do. And they're dying out there. The mothers aren't sleeping at night out there. So he hooked me because what he said was, I always waited for the spaceship to land and say, you can come home now, Bill. And I went, oh, spaceship people. <laughs> I lifted my chin off my chest and looked around and I went, okay, spaceship people. <laughs> he hooked me just with that. And I don't know why, but I've been here ever since. Yeah. First year, sponsors, couldn't talk, all that, slept on floors. Man named Chuck Nesbitt saw me one night, taken taken score. People took care of me, you know. I slept here for a week, I slept there for a week. I had somebody give me a sleeping bag. I got a sponsor, moved to a couch. Get a sponsor, you get life gets better. I got a couch. <laughs> My mother sent me a blender so I could eat. I couldn't eat anything. I'd blend everything up. So I had a big book. I had my blender, I had my paper bag of mismatched goods, my backpack, and that was my worldly possessions with you. And you guys treated me like I was gold, like I was worth saving. And um, that guy Chuck saw me keeping a list one night. Ugh, you know, I had different little people had given me rides, people had given me money, people had given me cigarettes, people that had given me clothing, things like I had it all on their list because I'm going to pay you back when I go because I always go. I don't come out and stay. I'm in the same home group about 41 years later. I have the same phone number I've had since my second year of sobriety. I had to get it 
as a Google phone because I was going to lose it, but I kept that number. People still find me years and years and years later because of that phone number. That's not me. That's Alcoholics Anonymous. So he looked at me, and he looked at that list, and he said, put that away. He said, one day you're going to have a car, registrations, license, and insurance all in the same name. How do you know that? Insurance? What's he talking about? And he said, you know, one day you're going to know that that girl's starting a job, and you're going to be able to put those clothes and cleaner bags in your trunk. And when the meeting's over, you can take her out and open that trunk and give her those clothes from the cleaner bag. I thought, how do you know about the cleaner bags? It was his wife that had done that for me. You can stick 20 bucks in that girl's purse when she goes to the bathroom because you know she needs it. That's the way we're going to be paid back, Sharon. Pass it on. Put that list away. He gave me an edict for Alcoholics Anonymous. What's been given to me, I have to pass on. And uh, I got a little bit of self-esteem back from that, that he knew I could do it. He knew I could do that. And he was an old-timer in our group. I remember the first time I got honest, it was a guy named Ramon. And Ramon didn't speak English, he didn't speak Spanish, we didn't know what Ramon spoke. But um, <laughs> he was an old timer in our group, and um, it's like he'd sit in the back of the room, and if somebody was like going on and on about a lot of BS, he'd sit back in the room and he would just go, Well, Ramon speaks. And then another time he would go, Really? And it was like, Ramon speaks. So Ramon, he said something about this watch I had. And so I'm walking around in this Thursday night meeting, and he said, that's a nice watch you have. And it was a watch on a chain. And I said, it was my grandfather's. And, um, you know, he was my favorite grandfather. and something I have of his. He said, why? Because I felt guilty about my grandfather. I didn't go. I was at the bar blocks away from walking to see him to say goodbye to my favorite grandfather. Drinking. So I had this, and I had to make up this story. That's lie I had told for years and years and years. But I walked by Ramon, and as soon as I walked by Ramon, and after I lied to him, I said, oh, he knows. I know he knows. So I'm, I don't know how many times I went around that circle with Ramon. He, he didn't say it, but I heard him mentally going, really? You know, I, I just heard it. So I sat down with him on maybe my fourth lap, and I said, Ramon, that's a lie. I've been telling that lie for years because I feel guilty about not seeing my grandfather and saying goodbye. And he said, Sharon, that's okay. You don't have to tell that lie anymore. That tiny little thing set me free. And so when I had a child, I got to name my child after my grandpa, Wesley. And um, life goes on. You know, sponsors, steps. My first third step was, this is how rummy I was my first year. My sponsor and I, we get down on our knees. We do this whole thing. I still have a broken jaw, I think. She's all happy. She gets up, she hugs me, puts her face and my chest and just hugs and I'm thinking oh my arms at the side like don't touch me don't touch me don't touch me I'm gonna hit you I'm gonna hit you and then I knew everybody would share and her sponsor you know so I I, I just kind of stayed there very stiff and she's so happy we did this third step and finally all of a sudden I just kind of relaxed into her I don't know what it was you know maybe it was her love her warmth something I had this moment where I just exhaled, and I just thought, oh, I know. I know what it is. I must be in love with my sponsor. I guess I'm gay. (laughs) That's the way my brain worked. It was very short-circuited, you know? I thought that they worked together, but they didn't. She says, don't make any major decisions in your first year. And so... (laughs) 
It's good because then I met my first husband on the AA campus and um, we went, you know, I had done my inventory, hardest thing I ever did, but I was eight days ahead of a woman named Pat Y in our group and Pat came in and took all the attention, my thunder like I had any, right? And everybody wanted to be with her because she could talk, you know, and <laughs> she didn't drool on herself drinking the coffee, you know. <laughs> And, and Pat's making her amends. Did you hear Pat's doing her amends? And I'm thinking, I haven't even done my fourth step yet. Oh, and I was going to leave at the Palm Springs. They had the big Palm Springs roundup that Chuck C. and Johnny did every year. And I'm out there, and I'm seeing my detective. It's like I'm going through this horrific kind of flashbacky thing with all these AA people. And I ran up to this girl, and I hugged her, and she went, oh, my sunburn. And I went, that's it. I'm drinking. You know? <laughs> and I'm on my way out the door, and a guy named Duke stopped me. And and he talked to me, and I said, yeah, then I'll have less time than Pat. I Keep me in the store. I did not want to have eight. I, that woman that I have eight days on kept me here. And Pat and I take cakes every August together. So we're still here, which is awesome. But she pushed me to do my inventory. She pushed me. And I went home, and I made those amends to my dad, and it was very cursory. He said, I always wanted you to be happy. Nobody hugged. The earth didn't shake. The clouds didn't part. It was a good beginning, my sponsor said. And they met my guy that I was going to marry. And they came out, and my dad walked me down the aisle. And somebody took a picture at the end of that, and my dad and I were eye to eye. First time and I don't know how long we were eye to eye. And I have a picture of that. And um, he met you, came to our meeting, bought the big book, read it. So, you know, I'm married. We're doing a lot of panels. Uh, there's a lot of... Uh, Pets coming in and out of our lives. People are giving us stuff. I have to find them homes. I drive down this street after a panel at 11 at night, and it was a shortcut street, and there's a dog there, and it wouldn't leave. I can't have a dog. Beep, beep, you know. It's 11 at night. I don't want to make too much noise, but it wouldn't get out of the road. So I just opened the door, and it got in, you know. <laughs> it got flea bathed. It got to the vet. It got all ready to go, and it found a home at Beverly Hills. Well... About a year later, I'm driving down that same street. It must have been out. Sit there and wait. She'll come, you know. So <laughs> another dog. And I found it a home, too. So I was, like, you know, trying to make amends to the animal kingdom because there's some things that happened because I was negligent that I lost my pets and broke my heart. And um, so I've been able to, to do that. And I've been able, like I said in the uh, the panel today, I've had some of the girls I sponsor, if they're whining and being lonely, I go have them rescue a cat or rescue a dog if they can. And um, it's, it's you know, we're just doing our part. We're doing our part. And life goes on, and, and um, I get this woman, Ginny, as my sponsor, who taught me how to soften up and do my nails and be a woman. And I'm having, I'm waiting tables and now that changed. And I finally got to be a good waitress because I didn't tell people how I was when they asked, you know, if they tell them how, they don't want to sit in your station anymore. I'm like, weird lady. She just brings us down. Actually, the Culver City Clubhouse told my sponsor on me, you know, they called my sponsor and they sent the Queen Ellen on Sally Carpenter over to go like this one night at the Saturday night meeting. I said, what are you doing? Because I had my orange uniform on going to the night shift. She said, I want you to do that tonight. The Culver City Clubhouse said you bring people down. You're not going to make any money or you're not going to make it as a waitress unless you just shut up and give them hot food. I said, well, this is, this is phony. Aren't we supposed to be honest in all our affairs? She said, they don't care. They want hot food. 
So I did this all night. Just to, I'll show her. I'll do it all night long, and it's still going to be a rotten night. And I counted my tips halfway through my shift, and I was making good bank. And I thought, those people are smart. So um, I learned how to fake it out there in the world. And thank God, because I don't get corporate America, man. I, you know, I tell one joke once a year, and they all go, oh, thanks for sharing, Sharon. <laughs> They know I'm a little dark, and um, <laughs> yeah, not something you want to bring up at the conference table, but, um, and I've learned how to pinch my hands so I shut up when everybody's not being fair, you know, I just want to say, you know, they, you already talked, will you just shut up and give this person a chance, but I can't do that, I work with lawyers now, and I know, and, and I've been pardoned by the state of Louisiana, a girl that I drank with in New Orleans, Passed the bar, went, got sober, and sent me my gift. So you never know, right? You just never know. So life has gone on. And, and the freedom that I've got, you know, I got my car insurance. I got my car. I got my car insurance. A man named Hank Johnson. I don't know if you ever talked around here, if you guys ever heard him, but he sold car insurance. And they said, you're not driving that car to you get car insurance. I just got to do that with my newcomer. It was awesome. <laughs> no, I'm getting the keys till you get car insurance. And, um... Because we want to be safe from people like you. That's what they said to me. I got to use that line. It was great. I loved it. So she got car insurance, and then she got her keys. But Hank Johnson came over. I had a $24 a week room in, in Inglewood, and I could barely make my rent sometimes. I had a telephone, a Mr. Coffee, and Hank came and knocked on my door and brought in his insurance policy and wrote on his knees, because I don't even have a table. And I gave him my first payment, and tips and everything, and he shook my hand and said, welcome to becoming a citizen, and that was another day I stood tall. He took the time. He took the time. And now I have, they thank me when I renew my insurance, thank you for your 41 years of service, you know, I, th I hope you're getting residuals up there, Hank, you know. <laughs> but I want to hurry up with some of men's and family stuff because, um, you know, I called my dad and because my sponsor had me call him and ask him if I'm paying back the money I owe him. And it was five years of sobriety. And she said, um, my dad said, yeah, it's this much. He had read the book. <laughs> <laughs> he ran the calculator tape and he was ready for me. And so uh, <laughs> my sponsor said, then you send him on time because you're an example of Bill and Bob. And what happened was... Um, she said to me, are you willing to grow through this with your dad? You know, those sponsors, they have a little insight. They want one more thing. You don't know that one more thing is going to make the difference. You don't know that your willingness and the humility to say, okay, even if I'm painted in the corner, I don't care how I get humility. You know, I, I had somebody write in my book, big book that, you know, humility is what is left when the pain has been removed from humiliation. That's true. You know, you can humiliate yourself to get humility, or you could just try to seek and be humble with God. I don't know. I just know that when I'm in a teachable, willing state, I feel closer to my God. When I'm in a state where I want to be of service and I'm not thinking about me, I feel God in my heart. And um, that's something I never thought would come back. And so um, my dad got that sponsor said, don't send the cold hard cash in the envelope alone. You know, tell him about your life, write him a note. Mensa, you know, everybody else. And I'm writing him the note about going to the jail panel, you know, like he's probably interested. But my dad got in a check and a note or a check and a letter or a check and a card for almost five years on time because Bill and Bob are watching. 
And he picked up the phone and called me on Chris, day after Christmas. I remember it was Boxing Day, and he picked up the phone and called me and said, Merry Christmas, I don't want your money anymore. It's free and clear, done. But don't stop sending me your notes. Because that sponsor knew there would be a healing, and I didn't. That sponsor knew there's a chance that the innocence between me and my dad could come back, that my dad wasn't going to look at me and know all those things I had told him I had done that my dad was going to look at me and see the sunlight of the spirit and a daughter who was part of the force for good. And he did. And he got killed in 99, and it was it was uh, taken out of our lives in a second. When I got off the plane, AA was in my mother's home in her kitchen. And that's the way we did it. And um, Alcoholics Anonymous has afforded me to make it right with my family. Alcoholics Anonymous has afforded me the way that I can hold my head up and walk out in the, in the world because I have done what I know to do. My mother was 94 years old when she said this, and I had the awareness and the wherewithal to pay attention to what she was saying in the other room and perk up. God gave me a moment to listen because what she said to somebody was, there was only one time in my life when my husband said I couldn't help one of our children. That was something to hear. What does she mean by that? So the next day when we were alone, I said, Mom, can you tell me about what you said last night? Was that the day that I called and you said I should try the Salvation Army? And she said, yeah, that was the time. She carried that for 40 years. And what happened was she put the phone on her chest and looked at my dad the day I called, August 20th, and she said, she's in trouble, can we help her? And he said, no, we've tried. So she got back on the phone. I said, where did you get the Salvation Army thing? She said, I don't know, it just came out of my mouth. Seconds and inches that I'm here. Seconds. And my mother sent 20 bucks without my dad standing next to her, he'd have another speaker. It was my day. Everybody's sitting here with a day of sobriety. A sobriety date has had their day. Sit in that seat. Hang on when you want to run because it passes. I never knew that. Things pass. Wow. <laughs> that was big for me to learn. And um, so my mom and um, we went, we shouldered on and um, I had a very bad 10 years. Um, this, my dad was still alive, and I'm going to tell you this because these amends, making those financial amends to my dad. My marriage fell apart. He picked the newcomer in the room. Nobody got custody of the meeting. Um, they were in the back, pregnant and married in that order. I was pissed off and angry and hated all of you, and people would look at me and look, oh, Sharon's got 10 years. Do you want what she's got? You know, I was like, rah, 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 rah. I hated you. Just stand back and watch me suffer. I put that victim cloak back on, and I wore it for a while till it got a little too heavy. And my sponsor got off the plane with 21 days. Instead of 21 years, she smoked pot in Paris. And I ended up at Clancy's door and said, look, I don't know if you like me. I don't know if I like you, but I've got this baby. My husband left me for a newcomer, Ginny. Smoked pot has 21 days. He said, I know, Sharon. Come in and sit down. So I came in and sat down, and he said, we'll try. <laughs> We've been trying now for 31 of my 41 years. It's working pretty good um, so that was a, a big, big moment, and um, my car died, and I had my child in the car, and my car died, but it worked out okay, and I told my parents, because Sunday night, we talk. 
Tuesday. See, those financial amends were for my dad and my mom. They weren't for me at all. I think I'm walking down the sunny side of the street not looking over my shoulders. Well, yeah, that happens. Absolutely. It's freedom. There's promises. There's all of that in amends. But what happened was my dad got to be my dad. And he called me and he said, I was at the bank and the banker's got two cars that he doesn't need the extra one. And so your mom and I are driving you out a car from Iowa to California. If the record wouldn't have been rubbed out, as Chuck C. used to talk about, he would not have had the freedom to go help his daughter who was in trouble. It was for him to be my dad and my mom to be my mom. And I didn't get that until one day I got that. That's that awareness that you don't know. You're just, it's just happening. You will suddenly realize what an amazing gift that was through Alcoholics Anonymous to free my dad to be his, to be my father. So, you know, life goes on and they're married and I'm one year, one month and 13 days later, I meet my soulmate and his name was Casey and he won the golf tournament here. He was one of those winners. I don't know if any one of you played with him, but he was one of those winners and and we had a love affair for 24 years. <sighs> Great guy. AA in our house. We traveled. We did. We laughed. We had so much fun. He was a member and sitting in his seat. He was a home group member with commitments and babies. And and he was handsome. And uh, my son and him bonded. It took a while, but they did bond. And he, we didn't live together until we got married. And um, I'm sponsoring a Catholic nun, which is, yeah, right? Um <laughs> And that, that Catholic nun brought my son to her school and raised him up there. And, and that Catholic nun brought me back to the church in a way that was for peace and freedom and, and love. And I can come and go anywhere, anywhere. But my, my religion is kindness, and I take that wherever I go, wherever I go. Uh, Sandy used to say I'm trying to be the least disturbed person in the room. <laughs> And I have a little wristband that says that. And I want to be, you know, Friday when I was coming here and things are delayed and I'm in the wrong terminal and all kinds of stuff are wrong and I'm popping that thing on my wrist to be the least disturbed person at the airport. <laughs> I've got to be the least disturbed person on this plane. I am just got to... It helps me behave, you know. And by doing that, I meet people and people need things. And the joy of my fitting, my getting myself fit to be of maximum service is... I'm making amends to the world. I'm paying attention. I'm helping out. And um, so my husband got uh, malignant melanoma. And um, we went to the, you know, that's a day when you look at the oncologist and we say, well, how much time do we have? And, you know, he says seven months. And you look at each other and you go, both of us said same time to each other. He said seven years, right? Seven months. And my husband fought. He fought. And we got to travel, and we got he got to play golf in Ireland in the shadow of where his mother grew up. He got to play golf in Australia. We got to go to Sweden. We got to go to South Dakota. We got to go to Virginia, New York, Florida, Texas. We got to be together, and we got to be with a lot of UAA people. And um, June 3rd, 2011, I held him in my arms, and he took his last breath. And uh, you were all there. You were all downstairs, and um, or you were upstairs, but he waited for you all to go downstairs, and then it was just me and him. 
and the hospice nurse who, funny, funny how it works. She had been out of our lives for years, but she was my, my husband's best friend wife. They were divorced many years, and when I called hospice, she showed up. So it was family, and God was there. And um, so when that happened, and it's a very spiritual moment, very spiritual, joyous moment, um, I was able to crawl in my mother's bed on his, my husband's birthday last year and lay with her at 95 when she had two and a half days before she went. And we got to play her the polka Margie, because <laughs> her name is Marge. And we had this whole polka thing going, and there was like the chicken dance on there and some other things. And we're going, oh, please don't take your last breath during the chicken dance. You know, I mean, you know how we are, right? I mean, it was, it was the happy polka. My mom went out on the happy polka. And we honored her. And I'm just going to tell this little story because it's silly. But um, she was a pop from the pioneer stock, my mother. And um, we were in Wisconsin, and we brought her uh, we brought her down to Iowa to bury her next to my dad. And my brother looked at the the undertaker, and he said, "Well, can we can we take her ourselves? Do we have to you know pay two thousand dollars for the the hearse to bring her?" And he said, "You can do it yourself. You just have to have a release." Well, my brother said, "My mom would like this that we're going to save two thousand dollars and take her on the." back of a trailer <laughs> so we put her in those quilty things and we put her on the back of this trailer and we got her all bungeed in and done up just right <laughs> and we caravan marched down to Iowa and um, when we went over the Mississippi I love raptors I saw seven eagles <laughs> And when we put her in a barn, because we got there late and we were doing the burial the next day, we put her in the barn and I walked out into this beautiful Iowa field and there were hundreds of dragonflies, hundreds. And I walked into the house and I said to the guy, I said, do these dragonflies do this often? He said, no, they only come once in a while. And dragonflies mean transformation. And my mother was being transformed. And I'm going to let you know, we're almost there, right, Bill? I'm going to let you know that Alcoholics Anonymous heals. This program heals souls and families and hearts and the earth and the sky and everything around us that the power of the healing and the spirit of what we find here when we are reborn and we let it awaken in us is powerful. I respect it, and I love it. And my son is doing well, and I sat there. He got engaged last week, and I'm very happy for him. He's not an alcoholic. I don't know what happened. Um, <laughs> he tells me things like, Mother, calm down, you know. Call me back. Go calm down and call me back. <laughs> it's like, I raised you too well. And... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to tell this little story, and I'm going to sit down. Um, my husband and I were sitting by the window, and, and I wasn't very happy with the cancer and God and working, and I said, Honey, I'm not happy about all this. I don't see God in this. And he sat there quietly, and he said, Yeah, 
sometimes I don't see God in this either. Another treatment, another thing, you know, so he could stay alive. He did all these clinical trials so he could stay around. And um, he said, look outside, Sharon, you see the wind. And it was blowing hard that morning. The Santa Anas were blowing. And I looked, I said, yeah, I see the wind. Look what it's doing. You know, everything's really blowing around. And he was kind of quiet. And then he said, no, Sharon, do you see the wind? And I had to stop because I felt it was a spiritual moment and I better pay attention. Because what he said was, he emphasized the word see. And I, you know, I'm, I saw Kung Fu growing up, Grasshopper Sensei, this is a moment, be quiet, listen, say the right thing, take your time. So I got it. And I said, no, I don't see the wind. And he said, yeah, you see the effects of the wind, right? And I said, yeah, I see. Look at what's going on, the effects of the wind, but you don't see the wind. I said, yeah, that's right. We're drinking our coffee a little more. And he said, that's kind of a lot like being God right now. I don't see God in all of this cancer. I don't see God in all of this treatment and everything I'm going through. But every single day, I get up and I go out and I look for the effects of God. And that's what you've taught me to do. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.